Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deck Arts Podcast. I'm back again with JT, and we're going to be talking about A Clockwork Orange. If you listen to our podcast on the 2001 Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick, you'll kind of have an idea of what we're doing and what we're talking about. And um, so you should listen to that and then listen to this. So um, this movie came out after 2001 Space Odyssey in 1971, and it the book came out first, and if you've read the book, you know that it's really weird, and there's like this made-up language, and it's all really violent, and has a lot to say about the current culture that it was set in. So um, you wrote a paper on this, too, and you talked a lot about the costuming in the movie, and um, sort of the group, like effect of the Droogies, do you sort of want to like go in and like describe sort of like what's happening and why they chose all that weird stuff? Yeah, so th- as you said, the, the film takes place in this dystopian future um, that feels, looking back on it, it feels very 70s because <laughs> um, it's using a lot of this like kind of 1960s, early 70s brutalist architecture um, with these really cold stone facades, but then the interiors are very pop art and like metallic surfaces and velvet paintings and everything is hyper-sexualized. So it kind of brings you into this world that uh, again, it's it's another Stanley Kubrick world set in the future um, it's a little. It's a little less optimistic than two thousand one. Um, actually, very, mu- very <laughs> much less optimistic. Um, and so, the movie is about um, the main character Alex Delarge, who um, is the leader of his kind of gang um, called the Droogs, and. They and as you said, they speak up. They speak this made-up language called Naz, Nadsat, which is a blend of English and Russian, and it uses kind of also English, like childish language, like Eggywag or Appy Polly Lodgy, um, and it and it just kind of makes brings this whole kind of fantasy aspect to it, but also then using this language. Um, kind of establishes this subculture element um, and then this is reinforced especially by their by like the sartorial constructions um, so you have um, the Kubrick who is known as to, known as being a very uh, authoritarian kind of director where everything has to be Everything that happens on screen is done on purpose by him. Um, and he, but he did work very closely with the costume designer, uh, Milena Canero, Cananero, and she kind of helped, she, she thought of um, the costume ideas for the Droogs, which is these very um, kind of striking white, it's white pants and a white shirt with cream suspenders and a cream codpiece and each one of them wears a black hat and black boots 
And pretty much all the elements within this costume has a lot of different things going on, a lot of different kind of meanings behind them. Um, starting with the hats, I, or each or with the shirts, let's start with the shirts, where each um, droog has a different style of shirt. Um, and it kind of, and they also have a different style of hat too, which kind of gives them some uniqueness, but when you see them all together, it's they're like, it, like the sartorial uniformity of all of them create this group identity, this almost this like group solidarity between them, um, and establishes them as a like, like a closed social group. You can't you, you can't be a part of them without being without being in this costume, um, and. Um, with the boots, the boots are really interesting because that has a whole other layer of um, that attaches to like subcultural theory, where the boot um, the boots used were actually worn by a by subcultures in the late 1960s in London. Um, they were called bavi boots, which is a slang term for bother so it's about these the youth um, in London were known for bother like they were called the bobby boys and they were known for bothering public just kind of being nuisances um, and Canonero she she took this and was like oh this like this kind of connection um, really works with for this story and it kind of brings this whole kind of outfit together uh, in a way. Yeah, definitely. They look menacing, too, when they're all walking together, and I feel like there's a lot of shots of them as a group. Yeah. Like, facing the camera, like, front frontwards, and it's like, it is, it comes off as very intimidating. Um, and I love his friend's names, Pete, Georgie, and Dim. Yeah. Like, they kind of sound funny. Like. He's, yeah, and he says, like, Pete, Georgie, and Dim, and Dim was really dim, or something, something <laughs> of that, of the sort. Um, and so, I, what I think is interesting is that not everyone's dressing like them or making these crazy, like, fa- like fashion statements. I mean, everyone does sort of dress in, like, a weird sort of neon, like, 70s way. There's but, a lot of plastics. Yes. Yeah. And, like, jumps, like, suits, like like nylon suits like I think the woman wears like the pantsuit like Ooh, the, the red knit yeah. pantsuit yeah um, but it's interesting that that like there's a distinction between other society and them and then they meet a gang and the gang is the other gang is dressed differently yeah they're dressed in cam- a lot of camo yeah and berets which is interesting that these like it gives you the sense that there's a lot of these other groups like sort of running around um and then I also think it's interesting, um, the cod piece is so odd to me. Like, what do you think that has to do with sort of their luck? Well, it, it how, how I read it is that it's, there's multiple layers to it, where a cod piece is a specific male piece. It's protecting the male genitalia, so it's this... It, it draws attention to the the maleness of the group because it's all men, um, and it, but it's also a protective piece. 
Um, so the, the the Freudian fear of the lack of losing of losing the penis. I mean, it's kind of a manifestation of that, where it's like the protection, like protecting yourself from that lack. Um, and I I kind of make a make a relation to. Um, Alex specifically being being like a symbol of the uh, patriarchal system and that he like we we kind of assume that he's a very stylized person so we kind of assume that he and he's the leader of the gang so we assume that he created the their look and he's using it as a um as almost like a patriarchal symbol to keep it, to um, to exert control. Um, and one kind of connection that I make is like the it's covered. The cod piece is a protective piece, and it's covered in this it, with what looks like a woven fabric. And they all and all the droogs wear woven pants, and most of them wear woven shirts. And this is in stark contrast to two of Alex's victims who, one, the, as we talked about the woman in the red jumpsuit, um, it's this red knit jumpsuit. Probably, it looks like it might be some sort of nylon or acrylic or something. Um, but that the fragility of a knit fabric as opposed to a woven fabric, a knit fabric is much more easy to tear. It's much more body-hugging. It's... It shows the the natural curves of the woman's body. Um, same with the the cat lady at the health farm, who is his second victim. That um, Alex breaks into this health farm, and we've already seen him rape someone. So we don't know what his intentions are with this woman. Is he just going to steal things from her, or is he is he going to rape her? Um, and he ends up t- there's a um, she, there's a giant phallus, a gi- a giant. Um, uh, it's a white phallic uh, rocking statue. It's actually called the Rocking Machine. It was by Herman Mackink, um, and he ends up basically smashing her head in with this giant phallus and killing her. And she's wearing a, I believe it's like a forest green unitard with tights underneath. And again, it's this juxtaposition between the the knits of that are hugging her body as opposed to the the kind of loose woven fabrics of uh, the droogs. Yeah, yeah, that seems really odd too when it happens. Wait, so is that an art piece or is it? So, something that actually someone made. Yeah, there were actually six of them made. Really, actually, I thought it was just a, a part, like a like a set piece for the movie, but it's not. It was actually an art piece. Yeah, and there were, all the art within the room was chosen specifically for I mean, all the art within. Um, I don't know if anything. I'm not sure. I don't think anything was made specifically for the movie. I do know in the Corova Milk Bar that was all designed for the movie by the production designer um, John Barry. Yeah, that's an amazing set, the Milk Bar, because when you read the book, 
I think of it as, like, dim lit, like, pub look. Because, like, that's what I think of when someone goes and drinks milk or what I think. I don't know. <laughs> Who goes to a bar and drinks milk <laughs> these days? I know. <laughs> so weird. I don't know what else, like, I was had in my mind. But then it's something that you can't even have imagined is what he creates. Yeah. And it's weird. It's these people who are all, in all white, like... Is their body painted or? or I believe those are just super tight knit. They look like bouncers, right? Yeah. Uh, like the men, and then but then they're but if you, all of the other patrons are impeccably dressed. There's like that woman singing opera in this gold gown, and she has gold makeup. Yes. It's it's. So I feel like it's supposed to be this high class, or maybe not high class, but at least very hip. Mm-hmm. kind of bar and it's interesting like a milk bar milk is always associated with innocence and so is white like their costumes are white they're wearing a lot of these white outfits but they're not innocent they're anything but yeah the milk thing is weird to me because I guess I don't really understand the point well it's it, it, it's spiked it's spiked milk and I think they say you can get like milk with I think it's Velocet or Drencrum or something oh, like that I and literally just thought it was milk oh no it is way more than milk <laughs> it's I think there's like you can get an upper you can get a downer you can get like some it would be like an equivalent to like cocaine laced milk or <laughs> uh, Valium milk or something like yeah. that yeah Wow, interesting. It's like a white Russian. Yeah, basically. But pro- I, I'm assuming it's probably a little more <laughs> a little more lethal. That makes more sense, though, because also I feel like the milk bar represents like a meeting point in between their violent acts, which is interesting because yeah. like, then they have to go back to this like innocent, I guess, like if you think about it in that way of like white and innocences and they go do a violent act and then come back to the milk bar. Yeah, but, but it's also... It's. I mean, the the whiteness and the milk, kind of, almost they lose their innocence because well, it's spiked. But then you also have their, um, the furniture and like the well, there's all these um, mannequin looking things. These white mannequins with these colored hair, and they're all na- they're all naked women. So and. It's highly sexualized, a highly sexualized atmosphere, and even the milk that they get comes out of the statue's nipples. So there's this like kind of bottle, you know. I, I think of like the true principles of design, and milk should come out of something that produces milk. That's literally Henry Cole's dream, right there. Yeah, <laughs> that's so true. In like a very perverse, perverse way. Yeah. Um, so, I guess another interesting piece is then when he's not wearing the droog, um, but our like costume or getup. Yeah, it's then like this. He kind of looks like a pimp. Yeah, there's a in the scene where he goes to the record store. He skips school yeah. and goes to the record <laughs> store. Um, it's 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 really fascinating because he's wearing this kind of long purple coat with s- wide lapels that look like it's snakeskin, and 
he's he's a very he comes from a very middle class family. They it, both of his parents work, and he it, it's 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 like he's trying to he's using um, his delinquent um, activities to inhabit a different social class. Um, th- there's the point with um, the. Um, the like the hat that he wears is a bowler cap, which is usually associated with upper class British mm-hmm. society, and another droog wears a top hat, and it's like the subversion of these um, symbols uh, that kind of, that kind of identify them as a subculture. Um, but also, there seems to be an aspirational quality of Alex. He's obsessed with Beethoven. Um, Compared to the rest of his house, his room is very um, is very well put together and very clean and and stark. There's a lot of artwork, but it's very particular. Um, and he, through, with with his clothing choices, I mean, he's his style is very very particular, and you can tell that he takes care of that um and then uh after he kills that woman he ends up going to jail and we only see him in a navy blue suit after that um and to make a long story short he ends if you haven't seen the movie he ends up having to go through a basic it's more or less a brainwashing procedure uh to make him a functioning member of society and to get rid of his delinquent attitude uh, or his delinquencies, um, which um, as a result makes him any time that either something sexual or violent um, is happening either by him or around, even around him, he gets physically ill and physically pained. And then um, as a side effect, Beethoven uh Beethoven music is playing during his treatment, so anytime he hears Beethoven, it also makes him physically ill and and almost almost violent, like violently ill. Um, so there's actually a point to where it seems as if his like aspirational qualities are lost after his treatment because all of all of the identifiers of his aspirational quality, his style, and his love of Beethoven um, disappear. Which is, I, I thought that was so interesting that how they showed the brainwashing, and I mean it's really similar to how they do it in the book, and it's um, like something that you feel like could really happen. But what's sad is that his, that his style leaves like completely and he becomes so normalized it's like it's so interesting how they use style in particular when it's not so much like he'd get sick if he wore that like purple coat again but it's like they've normalized him so much to the point that like he can only like fit into this one box now because there's like no expression anymore on like at like even the slightest level yeah like they make it sound like he's gonna be normal, but then it's like he's basically this robot. Yeah, which is crazy. And that's kind of the big point of the of the story. And there's the line: a man, 
a man ceases to be a man when he cannot choose. I could be paraphrasing that, but that's the point. Yeah. Um, and that's and th- and that's kind of you know a human condition is that you know we need choices and I. I mean, it's it's a crazy... I mean, he, he was a murderer and a rapist, and he was an awful person. Um, but it's kind of this uh, tale of... Uh, this cautionary tale of, you know, what can happen if you're not... if When someone actually can't make a choice for themselves. Because mm-hmm. um, he eventually ends up being a pawn in this political struggle between the conservatives who are advocating for this treatment to be used all the time and a more liberal um, political faction who think that he that this kind of procedure should not be done. Um, ironically, one of those liberals who think the procedure should not be done is one of his victims. And they end up, he ends up trying to uh, exploit Alex in a way and exploit the treatment by playing Beethoven, which eventually drives Alex to try and kill himself. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that reverses the whole process (laughs) and he just becomes uh, who he was before. The movie ends with him, which is different from the book, but the movie ends with him uh, he he says, "Oh, I'm cured, all right." And then you see this daydream of him reveling in violence and sex. Yeah, I mean, it's so yeah. He tries to kill himself and then ends up in the hospital, and that's sort of when he's like, they do like this publicist like photo shoot of him in the hospital, and his family comes to visit him, which he had a falling out with, and um, it's so. Um, Oh, shoot, where was I going with that thought? <laughs> like, I just totally mind-blinked. But the end, it's just interesting how he uses the end di- in a different way than the book. Yeah. Like, it's a total, like, step away from, like, it then... How it does it end total, in the book? I don't... I, don't I, think, I read it 12 think, years ago. I don't remember. Okay, <laughs> I could be totally wrong because the language was so hard and mine didn't have, like, the one of those... The dictionary in the yes, back. Yeah. So I was just guessing at words, but... <laughs> Um, I did the same thing where I would I would be reading it and I would think one's one word is this and then two pages later I'm like that word cannot mean that because that does not make sense. Yeah, and so I think what happens in the end is he is cured and it's like this like he is at a complete loss of identity. I that, think that's, like, yeah I think that's what it was. Yeah, and like he does he does go back to the man's man's house that he was. I think he attacked the woman. Okay. But it's, like, a totally different outcome of, like, he doesn't revert back to his bad behavior, but he's still this, like, ghost of himself. He's just a shell of a person. Yes, exactly. And you have this, like, sort of, like, it's, like, this dystopia, like, you hate him as a person, but it's, like... You feel bad for him in a way. yeah, Yeah, he's, like, stuck in this, like, limbo. But it's also interesting um, how his all of his friends don't remain in the subculture either. They become part of the authority. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in one part, um, as soon as, when he gets out of jail, he ends up 
he meets a lot of his victims again. I mean, even you could think, you could even call his friends victims of his. He was awful to them. He he was like an authoritarian. He was like a dictator. Um, Even cut one of them with a knife. Um, And he throws all three of them in in the river. Um, (laughs) Great friendship. Yeah, everybody wants that. (laughs) Um, So when he gets out of jail, he ends up being confronted by a one of his earlier victims who was a, a homeless man that him and his, him and his droogs uh, beat up. And he says, oh, I know you, I know you. And there's all these kind of homeless people start kind of crowding around him. And it seems like some violence might escalate and it's starting to make him physically ill. And then these two uh, police officers come up and break everything up and see that it's, see that it's Alex and um, the two police officers are his old friends <laughs> and they drag him into the woods put his head in a trough of water and start banging on it yeah yeah it's this is not intense. an optimistic movie <laughs> no pretty much all of it is violent and very graphic too yeah. like the way he the way the movie's done it's not in no way does he try to make it less explicit than it is. Yeah. If anything, he tries to make it more explicit. But the one thing that's so great about... The the, the amazing part about the movie is that all of this is juxtaposed with this beautiful camera work and beautiful direction because every shot looks like a beautiful photograph. Almost every shot does. There's this kind of ideal it's i call it like symmetrical asymmetry everything is so purposefully crafted within the frame that you can't help but enjoy it and then there's this you have this kind of inner turmoil of hating it but loving it and i mean i saw this movie when i was 15 and it became my favorite movie to <laughs> all of my friends in high school were were just like, what is wrong? I made them all watch it. I was like, you have to see this movie. It's the best thing I've ever seen. They all looked at me like I was crazy, and like they were like, what is wrong with you? You are insane. But it was it was that kind of the artistic elements of it that I just found so beautiful and intriguing mm-hmm. that it's I, I consider it my favorite movie today because well one because it had such a big effect on me and it made me really want to study movies yeah and then I mean also just because it's I can every time I watch it which I can't do very often because it's it's mentally too much uh but it, it's still stunningly beautiful yeah and I feel like it resonates with a lot of people and like there's a lot of people I think you either you enjoy it or you don't there's no like oh I kind of like you know what I mean there's no in between like yeah. you either fall to one side or the other because it is so has all these things happening and it's graphic and you're, you just can't sit like in the middle but I think a lot of the imagery has been used by other people who love film because I know that um Alex wears those really long eyelashes, and it becomes, like, really iconic, those eyelashes. Just on one eye. Yes. Yeah. And it's... They use it in The Simpsons in one episode. 
Um, I think Bart or his sister or someone. I don't know. You can find it if you type in Simpsons and Clockwork Orange is like the first thing that comes up. But someone's wearing the eyelashes and it's like he's dressed up and it's like, I think it's Bart because he's being like a menace. Probably. And the whole thing is like, and it's just like. I wonder, is it a Halloween episode? I don't know. I don't know. I'll post um, the link to it so everyone can watch the little clip because I found it and I was like, this is crazy that it's like resonated to like such a level that like, I mean, writers obviously have to have some idea of like how iconic it is. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it was this. The movie was a pretty big movie when it came out. I mean, it was actually I think in 1972 Stanley Kubrick pulled it from all, or maybe it was 74. It was a couple years after it was released, but in England there were teenagers who were actually emulating the Droogs and. I think there were some actual rapes that resulted from it. And Stanley Kubrick felt really awful about it and um, pulled it from being released, not being released, but from being exhibited anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So for, there was a long time, I think, I'm not sure exactly when it was, if they released it on just VHS later or, you know, Laserdisc or something like that. Or Betamax um, <laughs> uh, until pro- probably until like the late seventies, I would think. But I'm not. It's it it had a lasting effect. Yeah. And even today, I mean, even today, there's there's a lot of references and things. I was watching something recently. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember thinking like, oh, this reminds me of Clockwork Orange, and I'm sure that there's some sort of connection here. Yeah. I'll have to think about it. Though. It's weird. Like once you sort of like know. You can't read the book and get the references. You have to see the movie to get... Because it's all stylistic. Like you said, yeah. it's all... has nothing really to do with the text. It has everything to do with the imagery of it. Yeah, it's such a visual movie. It's such a visual movie. It is. It's, it's really, so great. Visually, it's amazing. Um, like, m- mentally and emotionally, it's very difficult. Yeah, it's a very difficult movie to watch. Um, but... I mean, it's definitely worth a watch, but I found something online. I was, like, reading something about, like, design, and in 1993, there was this, like, Dutch movement, and it's, they, there was, like, this Droog design, or dry design. Do you know about this? I know Droog design. I think it's with the milk bottle. There's a milk bottle um, lamp um, by the Droog group. Yeah, and it's... It's really cool. It's so cool. It was like, it celebrates the virtues of ingenuity and economy within a coherent minimalist aesthetic, is what they said. And it, like, started is it around, connected like, 1993. To, is it connected to A Clockwork Orange? I know, I didn't know if that was, if the, there was a connection there, but, I mean, I guess that may, it could be. I mean, I feel like it has to on some level. I feel like you can't, like, name something that... And then not have any idea that it's the the, the yeah, back, and it the seems like the minimalist like yeah, like it like how you were saying Alex is like so minimalized compared to his parents who have like these checkered pattern like wall covering, you know yeah, and then his style is so like like oak pine wood cabinets and bed frame you know what I mean it's so different yeah and then but then like the modern yeah the modernist kind of like structured wall we have very white walls yeah. the 
the speakers that um, these squares or rectangular speakers that look like an art piece themselves. Yeah. Uh, and that spiky bed cover. Yes. Is so cool because it's like one of the only pieces of color within the room. Yeah. Uh, but it's spiked and it kind of gives like the only comfortable element in the room is the bed and it and it has like a three-dimensional uncomfortable looking quilt yeah on top of it or quilt or blanket yeah i mean it's odd but i feel like there has to be some connection yeah that, i don't know people can google it yeah. if you guys want yeah dream design's really really cool they, they one of their famous pieces is a chair of um different t-shirts that are clamped together through with like zip ties and it's created the share. Oh, it's it's really cool. Oh, that's cool. so cool. And I don't remember if um, oh, I forgot his name, but it's called "You Can't Lay Down Your Memories." It's the it's a pretty famous piece. There's a there's a bunch of them where it's all these um, found drawers that are stacked um, <gasps> yes. in all these different um, all these skewed like it's not structured. Mm-hmm. It's they're stacked um, in. Uh, like industrial within an industrial kind of rope thing that yeah. holds it all together in this in a circ in a circular manner, mm-hmm. um, and everything's kind of askewed. So it's not stacked. They're not like e- orderly stacked in a modernist way. It's and are like all very, of them a little bit different? They're all different because yeah, they're all found drawers. Yeah. And I find it to be one of the... And the fact that it's called You Can't Lay Down Your Memories because these are found drawers. They're new. Or they're not new. They're... They... Everything has, like... There's memories intact within what was ever stored in there before. Yeah. And the way that it's put together, it's 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 such a moving piece. Yeah. And of course it's, you know, a million dollars, but <laughs> yeah, casual. Yeah, just a casual mill. <laughs> um so is there anything that when you were doing this like research um I mean does this have any like similarities to what he did with 2001? I mean, do you think there's like an overlap that I mean I feel like it's the same with any director where you can sort of tell their stylistics and like. I mean, I think that there's the highly style the stylization um, in the way that he like everything is crafted very particularly within the shots um, and even architecturally, mm-hmm. um, the way that the camera moves within spaces. Um, wh- one thing I mean that I think is kind of important is that. He, he made this movie as not the antithesis of 2001, but a actual, almost like a test. He wanted to prove to, I don't know if it's necessarily to anyone, but to um, just to himself and to like his, his production companies and everything that he could make a low budget movie. This, I'm not sure what the exact budget is, but I mean, he went, I think, double the budget of 2001 and that was a massive budget it was like 60 million at the time i think i actually i have no idea actually a what, lot the, of what the numbers are. it was a it was a shit ton of money <laughs> and the, and a cocker orange is 
very, very minimal to that. I mean, even, and that, and it kind of goes within like the costumes themselves. I mean, they, why they work so well is that these were costumes that were bought from like thrift stores and put together as, as subcultures do, Mm -hmm. as people do. It's really cool. Like it was done on a budget, but in a very creative way that made that and just using everything all the locations were already there and the the architecture is used in such beautiful ways to kind of create this scenery where he didn't have to build anything else he could just film with in in what's there um I mean, besides, like, the milk bar that was constructed, but a lot of, there's a lot of exterior architecture Mm -hmm. shots um, that really create this dystopian atmosphere that didn't need to be, um, you know, artificially constructed. Yeah, it's funny because it was, like, dystopian, but at the same time it really was just British estate housing. Yeah. Which is, I was like, it's funny how they're using that as, like, some, like, um just in and of itself something that already existed and, like, making it say something else. Yeah, well, because, I mean, I feel like it's, like, the materiality of it. There's so much concrete. And yeah. concrete has and not a even polished concrete. texture. Yeah. Um, but it's also really beautiful in a way, especially cinematically. The way that he films it is... Um, it's harsh, but also uh, in, in this, like admirable way mm-hmm. like you yeah. admire it a lot yeah it's massive it has this like weight to it for yeah. sure um I had another thought that I definitely just forgot to <laughs> as well. yeah it's a really interesting movie and it's enjoyable especially if you've read like I think it's nice to put it with the book too because um if you read the book, I feel like you don't understand what's happening, and to have a visual is helpful. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, but you this. don't need to read the book. It's no, not... no, 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 definitely yeah. not. I'm, yeah, but if you want to read the book, like the movie the explains movie the help. book. Yeah, the movie will help basically. you out so much more. Yeah, so if you have read the book, it's like you need to watch the movie because it won't make sense. I feel like until you do watch the movie. But I was also going to add that, like, I think also. It speaks a lot to Dick Heptage's work. Oh, yeah. His work on youth and subculture. Yeah. And so if you're interested, anyone who's listening to this, if you haven't already read some of his essays, um, I think it speaks a lot to the feelings that probably Alex was going through as well. And yeah. Um, his book, Subculture, The Meaning of Style, is one of my favorite books. Yeah. It's so good. I think, um, I mean, a lot of kind of the ideas that I got to extract from the movie come from um, his work on his, his that book in particular. Yeah, and it's interesting because this wasn't, like, a movie that came out after, like, all these subcultures were happening. It came out, like, literally as, while... As it was... Yeah. Even, I mean, even before, because, I mean, he does talk a lot about um, the mods and the, the teddy boys, um, which come about within um, the 50s and 60s um, but he really dives deep into the punk movement which hadn't even started yet uh, and those boot and the boots in particular um, are such a 
um, an important part of the punk movement. And I think the violence is is heavily incorporated within the in the punk style mm-hmm. um, and the punk culture subculture itself. Um, there's a lot of elements I think that were taken from A Clockwork Orange within within that movement. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would definitely be the type of people who would watch it and enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thanks so much for coming on and yeah, talking to us about much. this movie. All right, bye guys. <laughs>